Toro Resource presents the Rob and Caleb Show. All aboard! And now, from two sides of the same state, here they are, Rob and Caleb. A what up? And shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show. My name is Caleb Hag, and with me, as always, a Rob Van Hoff. What up, Hoff? Hey, how's hello. It, how's it going, brother? It's going great. I'm so glad that you guys gave me the, the week off last week. <laughs> we were able to move our, our, our humble little shul to a new location that we're really excited about. Nice. Um, Air conditioning and all. Woohoo! <laughs> Need that right now. Well, what up and shalom to all of our listeners, and what up and shalom to everybody in the chat room. We thank you so much for joining us. At the programming desk is Gary Springer at the helm of our uh, chat room, and our web stuff is uh, Mark Randall, and he's asking me, do we have show notes for today? No, we do not have show notes for today. Uh, and the Robin Caleb Show is brought to you by TorahResource.com. Find all sorts of uh, wonderful free materials on TorahResource.com. You can also come learn with us at Torah Resource Institute. Find out all the information at TorahResourceInstitute.com. And the person who directs uh, all of the ongoings at TorahResource.com is my father, Tim Haig, who happens to be on the air with us this Yay. week. Woohoo! Hello, Dad. What up, and shalom to you. Uh, well, it's uh, it's a privilege to be here, actually, and uh, make contact with uh, people that maybe I normally don't make contact with. Mm. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So last week, uh, my father sat in while Rob took the while Rob moved his shul, and the week before that, we had a little bit of controversy on the Rob and Caleb show, as Rob and I seem to have disagreed. Uh, heaven. For bid, uh, yes, we disagreed. But uh, and then the week before, uh, was it the week before or several shows before that? We disagreed again. And uh, what is going on? Dissension in the ranks. Well, we're going to talk about all of that. Hey, look, Steve Seymour is in the uh, chat room. If you uh, if you are not in the chat room, you should join us in the chat room. Go to trradio.com, hover over the broadcast, drop down, and go to the Rob and Caleb show, and you can find a, find the chat room in the right-hand bottom corner. Okay, before we get into uh, what I'm going to call Disagreement Day, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to rip Michael Medved off. Uh, so before we get into Disagreement Day, let's talk about what's coming up this coming weekend. We have uh, one of the reasons you don't have show notes and one of the reasons that we have my father on today is because uh, we're, well, I don't know about Rob. I myself, my father I know, we're running around like chickens with our heads cut off trying to prepare for Torah Resource Institute Family Camp. This is going to be a wonderful time. Uh, family Camp happens once a year, and basically what we do is we rent out this facility. About 100 to 150 people come, and we have sessions every single day, uh, teaching sessions every day. There's uh, stuff for kids to do. There's food, swimming, food, music, there's archery, you, yeah, you name it. 
Uh, and and there's puppet shows at night. It's just a all around good, rambunctious time. Uh, there are some skills that we get to. Different people are skilled in a way that they get to kind of shine a little bit in their specialty. Yeah, is the Hoff going to bring his bass or what? <laughs> yeah, guitar. I don't know if our listeners know this, but uh, but Rob the Hoff is is quite the accomplished guitar player and bass player and bass player. That's right. And so, uh, yeah, it's it's an all around good time. And so this year, I don't even know what the, I'm the one who's supposed to be directing this camp, and I don't even know what the the theme is. That <laughs> shows how how well this camp is directed. Uh, what are you guys teaching on? Who's who's teaching what? And uh, and what are you guys? Well, our theme preparing? is like apologetics, generally, right? So yeah, defending the faith. Defending the faith. Yeah. Okay, Rob, what are you going to teach on? Well, my attempt to uh, dive into this is is going to try to complement what Tim is doing, and we'll hopefully with a lot of prayer. Hopefully, I, I'm sure the Lord will orchestrate this nicely. But I'm going to get into this issue of. Uh, how texts function for the sectarian groups in the in the Second Temple period. Oh, I thought you meant like texts, like on your phone. Okay, keep going. No, no, no. no. And and uh, a little bit into the background of of what it means to be a disciple and what it meant to be a disciple of Yeshua. How the apostolic canon then is is our reliable. Uh, teachings that are inspired by the Ruach HaKodesh that come through that discipleship. So some of this Tim's going to get into, but I'm going to focus more on the comparative between different uh, Jewish sectarian groups. Uh, we have some fun activities we're going to do for chronology and and things. So, uh, we'll, what do you? Okay, so what are you teaching on, Dad? Sounds like Rob's covered it all. Yeah. Well, first of all, when we talk about apologetics in in classical apologetics, uh, primarily apologetics is uh, dealing with proving the existence of God and then proving, uh, you know, the uh, various things that are generally attributed to God, that is the God of of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of the Bible, which then obviously once one tries to argue for the existence of God from evidences, then one generally goes to the uh, the Bible and why it's reliable and true and so forth and so on. Uh, we have tried to detail more our apologetic uh, lessons to those kinds of things which Messianic uh, followers, believers, uh, people within the Messianic uh, movement at large are confronted with um, time and again. And uh, so what I've done is kind of started back with a foundation and I know I'm accused of this, and rightly so. Uh, people say, Tim, you keep going back to the foundation of everything. We, we know that. We just want to get on to the rest of it. But I'm not sure everybody does know the foundation. And so I start out uh, basically by asking, what is a biblical worldview? And so my, you know, I'm going to talk about a biblical worldview. And then and then I want to say, well, if we have a biblical worldview, and I can, you know, I can give you the conclusion right now that a biblical worldview is primarily based upon accepting the Bible as true, okay? Because that's, uh, I'll explain that the worldview that we have, a biblical worldview, begins with the presupposition that the Bible is true. Well, but the problem that we have in our, in the wider Messianic movement is that Almost everyone will say, yeah, the Bible's true. However, they use uh, fantastic methods of interpretation 
to uh, to make the Bible say something that it really doesn't say. And so we get off on all of these various tangents and so forth and so on. So my second session is going to be saying, well, if we start with a biblical worldview that is based upon a God in the Bible, then we also need to ask ourselves, how should we interpret the Bible? And I'm going to be spending time talking about the uh, uh, historical grammatical form of interpretation, why it's logical, why it's uh, the only one that really can can have any sense. And uh, with that in mind, then the movement in the past, well, I would say in the in the 20th and 21st centuries, particularly mid-20th to uh, 21st century, across the board, that uh, hermeneutics, not only in Bible, but in literature, in mathematics, believe it or not, even in science, the whole idea that meaning cannot be conveyed with words and with language, uh, and that whole thing has enveloped our society. It's the it's in the air, or as the Germans would say, it's the zeitgeist. It's the spirit of the times. So I want to alert people to that, show them how that works, and move us all back to saying, yes, let's make sure we're adopting historical grammatical interpretation. And then I hope, if there's time, and I, I hope there will be, to end in another session with saying, well, then can we accept the apostolic scriptures as having the same um, uh, kind of authority as the Tanakh or as the Old Testament. And so I think that will lay a foundation for an apologetic that then has a lot of branches that can go off from there. You can't handle the truth! Okay, so let's move on now. Uh, and by the way, one one reason that all of our listeners should be excited about uh, what, what these gentlemen are teaching at our family camp is because we're recording all of it, we're videotaping all of it, and slowly but surely, at some point, you will be able to listen, watch, uh, and get all of the information that is given in these lectures. That's why you should be uh, excited about what's being taught at Family Camp this year. So I'm looking forward to it. I know a lot of other people are as well. Okay, so as I said, today is Disagreement Day. And uh, the reason why is because I think that there might be some some good tensions that uh, that are that we have here. Uh, between now for those who might not know if you're just tuning in with us for the first time on maybe like tune in radio or something like that uh, Rob Van Hoff is a uh, is one of the teachers at Torah Resource Institute he teaches a slew of different uh, classes including Greek and Aramaic and then my father is not only the uh, president of Torah Resource Institute but he is also uh, one of the teachers he teaches I think just as many, if not more, I would probably say more classes than anyone else at the school does, uh, including Hebrew and, uh, well, how we got our Bible, just that the list goes on and on and on. So um, to have the two uh, two main, uh, I would say two teachers who take the, the largest load of teaching uh, at Torah Resource Institute and then somewhat pit them against each other, if, if we can say that, uh, is hopefully going to turn into some Good listening on Tor Resource Radio. So, um, without further ado, I wish I had music for this. <laughs> I wish I had music for this, but I don't. Okay, um, so let's jump right into it. Now, this last week I saw that uh, Mr. Van Hoff was in conversation with someone and uh, using arguments to say that Yeshua was not a Pharisee. Now, 
I know that Yeshua never says anywhere in Scripture, hey, I'm a Pharisee. However, I have always assumed that he is a Pharisee. Now, I realize that's an assumption, uh, but I, I have always assumed he was a Pharisee. And uh, I believe my father also has uh, hypothesized Pharisaism in Yeshua's upbringing. However, Rob, you reject such a claim. Why do you reject such a claim? I don't know. <laughs> well, that's not a good answer. Come on, man. Just sounds like a good thing to, <laughs> good position to take. No, I guess. Well, there was a yeah, there was an interaction I had. As a matter of fact, I I'm going to try to paste in the in the screen on the on your Skype. Um, the the reasons that someone I was in dialogue with they posted this on the internet. Um, the reasons why they believe Yeshua was a Pharisee. Okay, so let, hang on, let's read some of these real quick. This this gentleman yeah, that was on here's the first one is, uh, or do you want to read them? Or okay, so I'll read them. You respond. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Number one, the title Rabbi was a title of the Pharisees that no one disputed, and in fact, there are 13 instances where the Pharisees call Yeshua Rabbi. I would disagree with that. Okay, well, well, not that maybe the data's right. I don't know about that. I didn't count. Well, no, yeah, uh, I, I'm not disputing but, that. But so the, the, the first argument that is posited here is that the title rabbi was a Pharisaic title. Um, and maybe, Tim, you and I could both comment. I would, just, I would say, well, John the Baptist is called rabbi, and I don't think he, there's no indication that he was a Pharisee. He didn't let... He, he was on a completely different program. He was a he was by uh, birth a Kohen. We know that, but he had no allegiance to any, um, as far as I can see, any system uh, or organized expression of of Jewish Mosaic Covenant life, so, other than that the the Holy Spirit was that had led him to live as a Nazarite out in the desert wearing uh, what people thought was very strange clothing, eating strange, you know, food, um, calling people to repentance. But why were the masses going to him then? But they called him rabbi. Why and, were the... and there were, there were uh, so I, I don't think that he was a Pharisee. So if we just say that just because someone was called a rabbi in the first century, that that means they were a Pharisee, I, I'm, I don't think that uh, that is, uh, is demonstrable. Yeah. You know, uh, I would agree with uh, with you, Rob. Absolutely. Uh, back in, I was just looking in my archives here. Back in 1992, I read a paper at the uh, Evangelical Theological Society meeting in, entitled The Term Rabbi in the Gospels. And uh, I, that's available, by the way, on the Torah Resource English uh, articles uh, page. And um, I, you know, when you're reading in front of uh, a bunch of evangelical scholars, uh, in fact, people whose books I was required to read, and you, you know how that is, Rob, when you're you're giving a paper somewhere at a, at a scholarly meeting, and the people that you actually learned from are in the audience, you you take a little bit of a, a deep breath and say, okay, am I going to get chewed up and spit out uh, because of what I'm saying? Long story short, I came to the conclusion in the paper, which I think I can find and read. Uh, I, I say, while the data do not allow us to make firm conclusions, their weight seems to fall on the side of rabbi being anachronistic in the Gospels. 
It's clear that we cannot, on the basis of the gospel, say dogmatically that Yeshua considered himself or was known by others as a rabbi, at least not in the sense it was used later, since in only one text do parallel synoptics have the term. It further seems clear that the gospel writers intend for us to catch their theology through the choice of titles rather than relate to us exactly what Yeshua was called. Therefore, it is clear that if Yeshua were referred to by the title rabbi, it was not in the official capacity which the term only later encompassed. Wait, hang on just a sec, though, because, because you, uh, you said it a lot, but, the, but you bring up the synoptic gospels. In John, he clearly is called rabbi. It says, and they called him rabbi, which means teacher. John is not one of the synoptics. I know, but but it's yeah. still scripture, and we still have to take it into account, right? Okay, but uh, at least some would, and I don't know where Rob is on this, but some would say that the Gospel of John was written much later. I know that there's those who were saying it, it was written earlier, but it, uh, there's some evidence that it may have been written later. Okay, wait, hang on just a sec. I, 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 I agree that, that John is later, but at the same time, it says that they called him rabbi. So if we take it as scripture, wouldn't we have to assume that yeah. John's telling the truth? Well, okay, but if rabbi in the pre-destruction era um, meant teacher and was not an official title, right. that's the that's the point. Yeah. Uh, now, Tampa, it, I, I, I agree. Think, you know, in this paper, I make the conclude. I, I come to the conclusion that it was on the way to becoming that. Okay, um, uh, people were beginning to use teacher in a way that it was not uh, originally or uh, at, at its beginning was used. It became. It began to become sectarian in terms of its usage, in terms of you're our leader and we will follow whatever you say. And that's why Yeshua says in Matthew 23, don't let anyone call you rabbi, for we have only one teacher. Okay, so another, you know, so the, the point there is that I think as, as the Judaisms of the first century were becoming more firm in their identity, which they weren't early on, uh, they were they, there was loosey goosey, right? I, I, I don't know, Rob, if you agree or disagree with this, but we find evidence, at least in the later rabbinic literature, if we can trust any part of it, which I'm not sure we can. But at any rate, um, we have evidence that uh, uh, Sadducean uh, daughters married Pharisaic sons, sons of the Pharisees. So it wasn't like uh, it wouldn't have been like. Well, what could we use an analogy? Let's say, for instance, someone was raised at a very staunch evangelical Baptist, and his son wants to marry... An a, Anglican. <laughs> a, a, or, a, or a Roman Catholic. <laughs> oh, heaven and, forbid. And, and, yeah, and, you would say, and, and dad might say, no, 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 come on, let's talk about this. Well, if we find Sadducees and Pharisees together in the Sanhedrin, we find their children intermarrying, we have a sense that the, that the dividing lines were not as... What can we say... They, they didn't yet have the barbed wire rolled across the top of the fence, okay? It wasn't quite as distinct as it might have been towards when we come to the destruction. And then after the destruction, from all that we can tell, the Sadducees essentially go away. The Pharisees become the, 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 the major dominant ruling party. And, uh, and so what we have in the rabbinic literature is basically uh, a Pharisaic approach to everything, including a description of the Sadducees. We can go back to uh, Josephus and get maybe a little uh, more of a, uh, an unbiased, but there again, he, he was himself, uh, you know, had, had a bias, and everybody knows that. So I, I guess my point is, is that in the, and here, here's an interesting fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, and, and was Matthew writing to a primarily Jewish 
uh, or, uh, you know, a highly percentage of the people in the communities that he was writing to were Jewish and there was a, a minority of, of Gentile believers. If so, it's interesting that in the Gospel of Matthew, the only people that call Yeshua rabbi are his enemies, including Judas. Yeah, but it's not that and, way. And it's the, it's not that way in the John. Gospel where he says, don't be called rabbi. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah, but you, but in John it's different, and I think we have to take John into. I mean, I know John's later, and I agree with you that that uh, maybe by the time John comes around, you start having this shift in the word rabbi from just uh, saying te- uh, a person is a teacher to actually a title of the synagogue or a title of leaders within within different sects of of Jewish faith. Okay, let me add one more thing here, though. The later use of rabbi, which could have been used by uh, uh, John in kind of a how can I say it you know uh, you guys are ordaining all of these rabbis and calling them huge authorities but there is one rabbi for us who are followers of Yeshua and his name is, is Yeshua okay but at what point was there an actual ceremony was there an actual you know laying on of hands smicha we call it right right um, uh, we don't see that happening for Paul we don't see it happening which is why we, people who call him Rav Shaul, uh, you know, I'm not sure why they do that. But at, at any rate, uh, we don't see this happening uh, with the with the other apostles. In fact, Yeshua in in John 14, what does he say? He breathes on them. He doesn't lay his hands on them. However, later on, we have Paul talking about Timothy, saying that he received his his gifting by the laying on of the hands of the elders. So the laying on of hands is kind of a, a smicha, but they were referring to smicha uh, in the rabbinic literature. It's a very major ceremony where an established authoritative rabbi gives his authority to one of his disciples, so much so that his disciple can even teach something that his mentor did not exactly teach, but the disciple says, but I'm sure he would have if he had the opportunity kind of thing. So he can say it in his, in his mentor's name, even though his mentor didn't really say it. Okay, so hang on. We're doing a whole lot of agreeing here, and that's not what this show is for. Well, hey, I want to add one more point, and then we'll move to the next point. I, I think Stern's translation has, has kind of aided and embedded this yes. uh, an, anachronism. And I'll just give you an example. This came up when we were reading Luke 20 a couple I, weeks ago. I wonder ago. whether you should call it translation, but go ahead. Yeah. Well, he says, uh, this is Stern's complete Jewish Bible in Luke 20. He says, one day, as Yeshua was teaching, in, in the, uh, teaching the people at the temple, making known the good news, the head Kohanim and Torah teachers, which I think should just be, it's just scribes, Grammateus, along with the elders, came to him and said, tell us, what semicha do you have? that authorizes you to do these things. Who gave you this semicha? Okay, what he's doing there, he's taking a later rabbinic concept that you, you, uh, that a, an authorized rabbi, to be called a rabbi means you have to receive this laying on of hands from someone who's in the train of, chain of transmission all the way back to Moses in their view. Had to be one of the, uh, one of the official authorities, and the semicha is not a translation anywhere close to the text. He's imposing, he's like taking something from later rabbinic world, snipping it out, and then pasting it over the actual text of the gospel. And Stern sadly does this. Uh, uh, like, you know, he's peppered his, his 
book is peppered with this type of problem. And it just encourages people to think in wrong categories. So um, uh, here, I think Stern is imagining, they're asking, where did you receive your Orthodox Jewish semicha? <laughs> That's the picture that people go away with. Right. Uh, oh, okay. They, let, let, let's get back on track. Let's, let's, let's go this way. Um, well, I'm a Catholic, which is the best of all the religions really, because we have the most rules and the best clothes. Okay, so Dad, why don't you tell us why you think Yeshua was a Pharisee? I don't think he was a Pharisee, and I haven't taught that. What I've taught is that he tends to use, well, I have two things. He tends to use argumentation that's, that at least appears by Josephus and others, mostly in the later rabbinic literature, uh, which appears, and in the Gospels, I should say, which appears to be the common argumentation strategy of the Pharisees. What do the Pharisees constantly do? They go back to a text, for it is written, or it is written. And you have some of the argumentation in the Apostolic Scriptures, where is it written? What, what does Yeshua do when he argues? I mean, take Matthew 5 as an example. He says, don't let anybody tell you that the Torah's, uh, that, that uh, the Torah has been abolished, or that I came to abolish the Torah. I did not come to abolish the Torah, but uh, to fulfill it. And and he goes on to talk about a jot and a tittle, right, or so forth and so on. If you continue on in the book of Matthew, particularly, uh, that's where I have my head right now, um, uh, he's regularly quoting Scripture in order to prove his point. Paul Secondly, refers to himself he, in, in Acts. He doesn't say, I was a Pharisee. He says, I am a Pharisee. So whatever that meant for Paul uh, was not considered by Yeshua or by the followers of Yeshua to be pejorative. In other words, he considered himself a Pharisee. Why? Because he took the scriptures as the basis for his argumentation. Uh, and, you know, it, uh, Josephus seems to indicate that the Sadducees, um, the Pharisees had oral tradition, they had, and, and the Sadducees re rejected it, so forth and so on. But uh, Paul regularly argues this way also. He constantly is quoting Scripture to prove his point. That, that's why, that's the one thing I would say seems to have Yeshua aligned with the Pharisees. He clearly was not aligned with the Sadducees because the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. And I don't mean, you know, can I use just an analogy here? <laughs> uh, you know, in, in America, we have these pol two political parties, Democrat and Republican. Well, currently, would I want to call myself a Republican? I'm not sure. I know for sure I'm not a Democrat, okay? But there's some of the things that I agree with with the Republicans and quite a few that I don't agree with. And so I'm saying, boy, when somebody asks me to identify myself with a group, I might say, well, I don't want to say I'm independent because that means I don't, I'm, I'm, I don't agree with anything that either of the two parties do. If somebody, here's my bottom line. I think if somebody would have asked Yeshua at the time, are you a Pharisee? He probably would have said, I, I'm not sure I understand your question. Uh, on the other hand, he may have said, do I have a great many of, fair, uh, uh, of friends and colleagues who are Pharisees? Yes. Do I agree with a good number of the tenets of the Pharisees as opposed to the Sadducees? Yes. But am I going to align myself with a party and therefore follow that party no matter what? The answer is no. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. And that, that fits into the second point here that, that this person on the Internet made was that the theolo 
quote, the theology of Yeshua is in total sync with the theology of the Pharisees. I don't think they thought in terms of theology, and I don't think Yeshua came, uh, Tim, kind of like what you were pointing out. Tim, Yeshua didn't come and, like Josephus, try on the different uh, yeah. uh, sects, like Josephus tells he did, to decide, you know, evaluate which one he thought would be a good fit for his lifestyle and his, his convictions. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, Yeshua, Yeshua came with a program uh, that was independent of, of Pharisees' agenda, independent of the Sadducees' agenda, independent of the Essenes' agenda. He had an agenda that was not defined by any tradition of man. And um, I think that, well, we could point out that, you know, the same way. We, some scholars have argued because John the Baptist was, it says in Luke that he, or in Matthew maybe it was, that he spent years in the Judean desert and that, he was preaching Isaiah 40, and that we have these texts from the Judean desert in the, from the Qumran community that, that highlights Isaiah 40, some of these same language that they start thinking, oh, John the Baptist would, must have been in a scene. Yeah. Well, you see, because there's so many connections. Um, and it's like, wait a minute. Okay, let's go back. You know, people, we start getting excited about these connections, and we got to be careful. We got to go back. What do we know from Scripture uh, but there are some other arguments. Here's another argument. Wait, could I add one more? Oh, thing? go ahead. Yes, please, Rob. And I think this explains why one of the reasons why Yeshua did not come right out and say, "I'm the Messiah." He did, though. Yeah, he did eventually. Right. He told the lady, "The one who's speaking to you is he." Okay, I understand that. Uh, the uh, uh, the woman at, at the well. Yeah, John four. Yeah, but. Uh, early on, his brothers ask him, are you the coming one? And John the Baptist asked him, are you the coming one, or should we look for another? He hadn't come and made a declaration. And why? Because if he had said, I'm the Messiah, then he would have fallen into the category that had already been predefined by the Qumranis, by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees, as to what the Messiah was going to do. and It I, was already a contested term. Yeah, uh, I, yeah right. Uh, mixed so mixed I, expectations. I, right. I, and, and also the Holy Spirit is, uh, he was, Yeshua never did anything that was out of alignment with the Holy the complete will. And so uh, he wouldn't speak a word unless the timing was, was right. And so... Yeah. Well, but I agree with you, uh, Rob, when, when you said he came with another agenda. See, that agenda was not well situated in any of the sects of of early Judaism. So he couldn't have come and said Messiah because to the Pharisees it would have meant one thing. To the uh, to the uh, Sakari it would have meant something entirely different, right? Because they were ready to revolt and take everything by storm, which is what they thought the Messiah should do. No. What did he come? He says, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. That was his agenda. No one thought they were lost. He demonstrated. He's had it. Everybody. He demonstrated by his works, right. by his deeds. Right. He demonstrated. Then later, after it was for everybody to see, he, it's made known. This is what Messiah is. Which what is, I've already done. I, I'm not going to tell you it in advance. Maybe except on those few occasions that we're aware of. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. Number three. He says the synagogue system. This is a third argument well, that Yeshua was a Pharisee. Okay. Keep going. Keep going. Are we? Caleb, are we hijacking too much? Here no, right no, that's fine. I just, you know, it, it, I, I think that uh, there's there's a level of agreement here. What I really want to get to then is the uh, the idea of 
conversion and, and the gear in the first century. Okay, in that case, let's go. We'll, we'll go to the very last one on the list. Okay, go for it. The last one on the list. In Matthew 23, 1 through 3, Yeshua defends and agrees with the Pharisees' authority to make halakha, quote, rules for living, even though he does point out that they, like virtually all religious leaders, don't always, quote, practice what they preach. There you go. That's the nail in the coffin, Tim. What do you say to that? Okay. Well, um, you know, the, the issue is that, and again, we're a little foggy in terms of we don't have a very, very clear and substantial and agreed upon history of everything that went on. But the Pharisees guarded their oral traditions, that is their halakha, quite as far as we can tell, they guarded them. They didn't want people just loosey-goosey changing and whatever. So if you're going to learn these uh, uh, most some esoteric understandings of the uh, of the Torah and therefore the halakha that is derived from them, you're going to have to go study with the Pharisees. They didn't just give the you know the Am Haaretz the people of the you know the rural people when they came to synagogue on Shabbat they didn't sit there and discuss the esoteric views of their halakha. So what is the seat of Moses? The seat of Moses is not a place where they stood up and told everybody how to tie their tzitzit. The, the seat of Moses is the place where they read the Torah and tried to expound the Torah in a very, you know, uh, you know, confined way. If you wanted to go study the halakha of the Pharisees or whomever, you had to go sit with them, sit at the in the dust of their feet and listen and learn and become their disciple. So the fact that you have in the synagogue Sadducees, you had Pharisees, you had you you had a, a mixture, as far as we can tell. Says that when Matthew one uh, twenty three one through three talks about they sit in the seat of Moses, therefore do what they say. It primarily has to do with what we read in Acts fifteen that every Shabbat Moses is read in the synagogue. All right, let's move. Let's move to so so basically, if I, just to wrap that up, the assumption behind this person's statement here that Yeshua defends and agrees with Pharisaic authority to make halakha is, is a mistaken uh, understanding of Matthew 23, of what's going on there. Right, and besides that, this person must think that the Mishnah uh, contains the halakha that was being taught in the first century. And that in itself is an, an anachronism. Okay. Let's move. So... We've had some debate and discussion recently on this show about the word gear and the idea of now Rob and I got into it a little bit two weeks ago because I was saying that, uh, uh, well, I was taking more of a new perspective on Paul uh, view of things and and Rob was saying, no, that's that you can't do that. So what do you mean? Yeah, we need to clarify what. Well, what is okay. The perspective on Paul. I think a lot of people. I would say I would say that the prevailing view was that a person, the prevailing view of the first century was that a person got in, was a part of the covenant member covenant membership of, of uh, of God, of Israel of Israel right through uh, through uh, a conversion process to to uh, d- different various sects of Judaism. Now that those that conversion process might have looked different uh, to different sects. However, uh, the one unifying thing between all of those conversion processes were or was uh, circumcision. 
And so when Paul uses the term, the circumcision, the uncircumcision, what he's doing is he said, and he even says the so-called as they, you know, the so-called circumcision. In other words, those who believe that they are true, truly the covenant members of Israel. Now you seem to disagree with that. Is that right, Rob? Well, I just think that it, there is no, there is no monolithic Judaism in the first century. They, they don't have power. There's no, there. We have vine groups, none of which have power because Rome really has the power, and you have a Herodian dynasty that is, uh, you know, kind of calling the shots, and 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 because of that, because there's no monolithic, it's not like the Catholic Church. It's not like there's a Catholic church and then there's different ways to become a Catholic. And then all of a sudden you're recognized as a Catholic. I, I think because there's no monolithic Judaism, there's no monolithic way to become Jewish. That, that's, uh, I think we need to be really careful and look at, limit ourselves just to texts in the Second Temple period and, uh, and try to uh, resist the temptation to take later halakhic decisions that the rabbis make in like in the Talmud and insist that they were the governing uh, principle or hermeneutic by which a person was judged whether they were in or out in the first century. That's what I'm wanting to protect a method uh, behind coming up with these ideas. That's why I, I resist that even the term conversion is uh, difficult for me to think with. Because why? I, why? Go ahead. No, why? Why? Why is that difficult for you to think with? I mean, it's a word that, that certainly seems to uh, uh, describe what was going on then. I mean, Galatians seems to speak directly to the idea that people thought that they could get into covenant uh, relationship with the with uh, with God through some form of ritual that they were doing. Yeah, but in the same way that as, as Tim, as you were just talking about how Yeshua didn't come and say, let me show you what Messiah is, are using the word right away, because every different, different groups had their own eschatological map, had their own notion of, is there one Messiah, multiple Messiahs, is he a, is he a military leader? You know, they had fixed expectations. Well, in the same way, another, and Messiah is what we call a Judaic symbol, a very important Judaic symbol is a way to think about it. It's a, it's a word that had currency among many different groups, and it, depending on who you would have asked, you would have gotten a, you've gotten a different story. And we know that just from the limiting ourselves to the Second Temple era texts, whether they're Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. In the same way, the circumcision uh, enjoys, I should say, a, a similar diversity of meaning. Um, and we don't have a word conversion. Um, and so, it, and there's a difficult history that we have to remember that made circumcision particularly a, a hot topic, because right after Antiochus Epiphanes, in order to expand his kingdom, forbade it because he wanted everybody to be uh, Hellenized, and he wanted to remove all signs of uh, dissent or under. Uh, any movements of resistance to his rule by eliminating circumcision, so too at a, at the Maccabean era. Which was before the Messiah, though, right? They, for, they go into other territories and force circumcise uh, nations of men and, that, and call them, you are now Judeans. It had nothing to do with religion. It had to do with the expansion of, of their power and that, that circumcision served as a mark 
of Judean national identity that didn't have anything to do with a personal commitment to, or, or trust in the God of Israel or anything like that. And that left a big mark uh, uh, in terms of resentment among Jews who were legitimate Jews, particularly the authors of the Book of Jubilees and the Pharisees later on, saying, hey, no, you can't just go to a, non, you know, a non-Judean, circumcise him, and then call him a Judean. It doesn't work that way. Um, and that's where we have the rise, in my view, of the Book of Jubilees and the, any sectarian groups that said, no, eighth day only, or, uh, or no, you have to do you know, this, this, or this, or, what, or whatever. Or but no, you have to go of, through a conversion process? But there's no convert. We don't have well, any evidence for a conversion process. Yeah. We have different Jewish groups that have different ways, of beco- uh, different ways involving time and ritual and learning that have to be undergone to, be, to move from being an outsider to an insider. But that means that could be a Jew converting to a different type of Judaism then, is if, okay. if we want to use the conversion. It's yeah, not a... Go ahead. No, it's, not a, it, uh, it's not just a Gentile becoming a Jew. And not only that, I believe that prosel, the word proselyte in Greek ends up representing by the first century a type of uh, hybrid negotiation between those who say, no, there's no way to, for a non-Jew to become a Judean. You can't become Judean. You could, the best a non-Jew could be is a proselyte. And you keep the label proselyte. You don't ever become a Jew. And part of that, the reason for that negotiation and that compromise is because they look back and saw how King Herod was called a Judean, but the undercurrent was that he was a half-Jew because of the resentment associated with that expansion and mass populations becoming, quote, circumcised, but not really according to Abrahamic faith. So you have a—it's a whole mess— then at the same time, you have Philo writing about, oh, well, circumcision is a symbol of the removal of the passions that, that tempt a man away from his intellectual contemplative life. I mean, you get all this kind of stuff going on. Not to mention, circumcision is time and again by Philo and Josephus and even Greek writers saying that circumcision meant not just Jews. It referred to Ethiopians. It referred to Egyptians. Uh, okay, Arabs. okay, okay. Hang on. Let, 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 let my dad respond here. Go, go for it. Sorry. Well, I, no, I appreciate uh, really. I appreciate all that you're saying, Rob, and, and I think it's uh, it's valuable to, to uh, mix into this whole discussion. Um, you know, the the, the fact that uh, we have, for instance, the party of the circumcision. Is, is this not found in the Apostolic Scriptures? Yeah, I don't think it calls them party. It just says the ek, ek perito, uh, Okay, but, ek but it, Yeah, uh, those ek, those from. The circumcision, and then we had, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's in that's in Galatians, uh, uh, but but it's uh, it's Galatians two twelve, excuse me, but uh, it still has the article. Yes, absolutely, and we have so, uh, so it's, it's, hey, it's, we have hey acrobustia also. We have the right. foreskin, right, right. Those okay. those I think we see those in, in okay. back. So here's my point: that like we like what's going on to a certain extent in our own uh, circles, there is a huge question about identity. I agree with you that there seems to be a party uh, or a sect of the uh, Judaisms, and, you know, at least by the very much later rabbinic literature, we we have indication that even the Pharisees were divided into various kinds of Pharisees. Uh, You know, we don't have a lot of that uh, coming up in the Gospels or, or indicated in the Gospels, but we can imagine 
it seems to be like some of our denominations where you have, you know, you have conservative Baptists, you have Southern Baptists, you have, you know, uh, a very evangelical Baptists, very liberal Baptists, so forth and so on. It would seem— As time goes by, right? As yeah. time goes by, they, they— Yeah. Okay. So the question is, where do I find my identity? Now, if you're, if you're a native-born Jew, okay, your mom and dad are Jewish, or however you want to identify that. They're Judeans, they're whatever— when I'm born, I, you know, like when Paul, what does he say of himself? He's a what? A Hebrew of Hebrews. What does that mean? You know, that's an identity marker. It means he grew up, I think it means he grew up speaking Hebrew, not Aramaic, not Greek. His first language was Hebrew. That was the holy language that he was getting back to the very source because that's what his parents did. He's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. What does that mean? It means he's a true blue. And he hasn't strayed, you know, into these other kind of offshoot sects and so forth and so on. So there's an identity crisis. Now, were there those who said, if you're a Gentile, you haven't got a hope? Sorry. You know, if you didn't get circumcised in the eighth day, so, so, so sorry. However, there were other groups, maybe amongst the Pharisees, that said, wait a minute. You know, the prophets tell us that the Gentiles are going to come in, whatever. Shouldn't they be circumcised? And so we'll give them some kind of entrance into our... Uh, group, and sure, they're going to always be classed as maybe second-class citizens. They're not going to, you know, okay, but we're still going to allow them in with us, and we're going to identify with them and they with us. That, to me, seems to be what's going on in Galatians, because, you know, uh, I think Timothy was was viewed as a Gentile, okay? You know, according to what all that we can tell, an illegitimate birth meant that the, the, the child followed the lineage of the father. Uh, his father was Greek. That's why he wasn't circumcised. Now, why did Paul have him circumcised in Acts 16? Well, I think it's because— Put him under the law. Yeah, no. <laughs> it was, first of all, in Paul's mind, because it, wasn't, it was a commandment. You know? I mean, Abraham was not a Judean. Abraham Wait, uh, okay. was not a Jew. Oh, hang on, hang on. Let me finish. He wasn't a Jew, but it tells him to circumcise those uh, servants that were bought in his house and so forth and so on. There is an identity marker, even all the way back to Genesis 17, that relates to circumcision. Some, it appears to me, some of the, uh, the sects uh, of the Pharisees said, we will follow the same pattern if you will agree with uh, essentials. Now, what those essentials were, I don't know. But if you will agree with essentials, we'll let you in, but you have to be circumcised. I think that's what was going on in Galatians. Isn't that what a conversion process is? If you agree with us and you do this, then, then you're one of us. The problem that you have, Caleb, with is the word process. It's like you have, you know, it's like when you go down to the DMV to register your car. You've got to have this, 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 this. It's got to be signed this way, this way, this way, this way. Or they say, no, it won't work. You have to have every, all your ducks in a row. I think what Rob is saying is you go from one region to another, from one area to another, and, uh, you know, well, let's just face it. In the later rabbinic literature, this is in, uh, this, this is in uh, Pesachim, right, uh, where they argue about whether one has to do a mikvah, whether one has to be circumcised in order to eat the Passover, so forth and so on. You know, if he, if he converts, if he becomes, a, uh, if he goes through this process or whatever, and we're talking about later rabbinic literature, I know. If he goes through the process on the eve of Passover, can he eat the Passover? In other words, is he unclean by way of eight-day uncleanness? You know, he's clean on the eighth day, or is he unclean only with regard to, you know, uh, the sun sets, he does a mikvah, and he's clean? Or is he not unclean at all? Is a Gentile 
clean or unclean. And you know the controversies, right? Some of the, some of the authorities say a Gentile is not unclean. Why? Because the laws of ritual purity relate only to Jews. Others say, no, he's unclean as a corpse, as though one who was in the grave. So it's going to take eight days. So they argue about it. There's some that come up saying if he does a mikveh, he doesn't even have to be circumcised. We can accept him. So there were, there were, uh, there were different uh, opinions. My last point, and I'm sorry, I'm kind of... Go for it. Keep much. going. My last point is simply this, that there was an identity issue that went on, it seems to me, in Galatia. Was it enough to be in Messiah, in Christo? Was that enough? Or even if you were a believer, if you were a confessor that Yeshua is the true Messiah, was there still something more you had to do to be in this group's identity, whatever group that was? Those who came from Jerusalem who were causing the disturbance in Galatia were saying, yes, there is something more you have to do, and it appears to me it relates to circumcision. Because Paul says in Galatians 5, if you receive circumcision, you'll be accursed. Well, then was Timothy accursed? No. So when we look about this, we have to say, we have to understand him to say, if you receive circumcision as a marker for you to gain better access into the people of God, you have trusted something that is not what God intends. To me, it seems like, look, I feel like you guys are trying to say that, that people were different and communities were all much different than they are today. When we say someone just converted to Judaism, okay, somebody's going to say, what kind of Judaism? Well, they converted to Orthodox Judaism. Okay, that's going to be different than Reform. But when you say convert, everybody knows what you're saying. And back in the first century, I think it was the same thing. If you wanted to become part of this uh, part of this group or that group, you had to go through a process. That process might have looked a little different between this group and that group. Okay, fine, fine, Caleb. I hear your point. But but the the statement that I think we need to take into consideration along with the thought that you're expressing is there are Orthodox Jews in Israel, rabbis, that look at, let's say, a conservative Jew in America and call him a goy. And in other words, it doesn't even matter what their halakhic practice is. They would, in, in order for them, for, for, let me finish, in order for that conservative rabbi in America to be recognized as true Israel, they would have to convert. I agree, and I so think... It's it, a, but that's Jew to Jew. That's not... Gen, so th- conversion... But the same thing was going on in the first century. The, the Qumrani said the same thing about the Pharisees. You're not, you're not, part, you're not part of the real remnant. Okay, but I... Okay, I, granted. I, I would accept that sense of, of conversion, to use that definition, if you're including that. My sense, when I hear people generally talk about conversion, it's from one... It's kind of from one religion to another. In other words, it's like... You know, it's a, a, you know, a Christian, some or a secular person who's not Jewish converting to Judaism, or it's a uh, someone converting to Catholicism. In other words, it's a, a religious conversion. But you don't but, think? Okay, hang on, just a sec. But you don't think, Rob, that that there there was a belief that a person could become Jewish in the first century, right? I think that was. I think that had been squashed. I think that idea was had been basically. Uh, washed away because of the scandal with the Maccabean That's uh, expansion, calling people Jews. Now, we, this just don't is, have, we don't have any evidence of people. All we have is the emergence of this term proselyte used to describe... Look, in, in all of Luke, we only have proselyte a, a few times. We have Matthew says, you guys, you know, in Matthew 23, he mentions it. That's it in the Gospels. Then in the Acts, it's always Jews and proselytes. 
Hey, hang on, just it's a second. A separate wait, wait. category. That, that's here, a, let me let me point something out. Your dad made the point, and I want to. I think it's a great point. The DMV going, and you have to do all this. That at least, when you get your driver's license, that at least is a state recognized, um, and internationally in Washington State, you can get a special driver's license that allows you to go into Canada. It's a it's a recognized by a legal state power that has control over its. Ge- geography, its geography, its its land, it has political authority. These groups didn't have that. The Pharisees didn't have that. They were vying for it. The the Essenes didn't have that. So the best they could offer is you're part of us. But that doesn't mean a person could convert in Galatia to whatever these influencers were peddling, and then take a ship to Jerusalem and go up to the temple. There's no. Th- we have no way to demonstrate that that would have been recognized. And I think that the evidence of the person who wants to cl- make that claim, that all of a sudden you're, part, you're a Jew now and you're going to have access to full rights and privileges, is, is I think that's a myth that we need to question. I think that, however, um, it, it appears in, for instance, in Acts 15, that there were those who came from Jerusalem. And, right? Okay, so maybe... Yeah, and, and, and now not to... We don't know that about the well, people coming came, to Galatia. Came. We no. know that the people that influenced Peter. See, even Peter was was intimidated by some people. When when Paul tells us about what happened at Antioch, he talks about the people that came. Uh, yeah, but from I'm James, saying, there must have been some. And Yeshua himself said, "Now this some have taken it to be hyperbole, but uh, he says, you, know, you, you Pharisees send." people over land and sea to make one convert and and you uh you know and i know it's a controversial text but and you make them twice the son of hell as he was before but uh yeah that's and that's not a good that no doesn't sound like a good thing but what i'm saying is i'm just using that to say apparently the pharisees were uh uh or those of some sect if they were pharisees i don't know but some sect and and I would take it to be Pharisees. Yeah, yeah. To yeah. make it that, that's the to, only to, evidence to make, we have there. Right, right. Matthew twenty three to the verb poieo to make a proselyte. proselyte. Right, but it says in Acts in Acts fifteen two that there were those who, that uh, uh, they determined they should go up to Jerusalem. When they arrived at Jerusalem, and then there were elders who were in Jerusalem who seemed to have uh, quite a bit of say in this context. Okay, so. Uh, yeah, I, I I think that there's. I'll just end with this. That from all that we can tell from Josephus and so forth, the Pharisees were a dominant sect. Okay, the Essenes, whoever they were, or whoever they were in the Dead Sea's uh, uh, sect, they had they had a wall. Can we use it that way? You can't be part of our group unless you do this, this, and this. I think that's what MMT is talking about. Uh, sure. Yeah, okay. Masekhet HaTorah. Ma'aseham Masekhet HaTorah, right? Uh, some acts of the Torah, some works of the Torah. So they were saying, if you want to be part of our group, you have to do this and this. It seems to me that in Galatia, these who had come, these influencers, whoever they were, were saying, if you really want to be part of the group that has the top notch in this whole thing, you have to do some other things. Sure, and, sure, and it would involve a time commitment. It would involve sure, a, a ceasing sure. to fellowship with this group and exclusive fellowship yeah. with this other group. Absolutely, uh, you know, and it probably cut, there would probably be some fees, financial fees involved. And you know, it could be that any of these groups that had 
uh, net, through their network connection to Jerusalem, say, I know a guy, you can get into the Temple Mount. Right. I know a guy, in other words, let's say, now I'm just imagining this right here, but let's say, you know, we had this, this court division that if you weren't Jewish, you couldn't get into, right? Well, if someone was a new newbie from out of the country who's going through this procedure, whatever you want to call it, a conversion for the time, for the time being, they're probably going to be advised, okay, this is the guy, this is the gate you want to go up to. Go to this guy there. Um, Slip him a couple of shekels. You know, because the point is, it's these are these are networks with limited power, sure. and they're com- they're competing with each other. They're, they they want to retain membership. They believe their program is right on. And um, okay, so, wait, hang on, hang on. I, I got- what I hear what, what I hear you saying, Rob, and I think I'm understanding you better now. Is that you? You say okay. We can't. We certainly, and I think we all agree on this. There is no monolithic Judaism in the first century, so there's no monolithic conversion. Like you were a Buddhist, now you're going to convert to Judaism, like we have today. But we don't even have it today. If you're going to convert uh, into a Hasidic Judaism, it's going to take you years. If you're going to convert uh, to, to a Reform Judaism, you you go and jump in a swimming pool and come back out and but that's and are good for it. That's the point, though, is that it was exactly the in my mind it was exactly the same back then as it as it is today. If you wanted to become part of one of those groups, you converted and you did it under their conversion. Sure. And if you it's and like it, the Lubavitchers are only going to eat uh, meat slaughtered by Lubavitcher. Right. Uh, sure. Okay. Wait. But uh, I want. I, I want to go back. I want to go back. The, two things. First of all, let's use some fighting words here. It, it seems to me when you say Rob that uh, in the Maccabean uh, time, people, you know, they they saw conversion as becoming Jewish, and then that fell away by the time Yeshua came. But then by the time you have Akiba come and convert in the in the second century, Akiba was not a convert. Yes, he was. Akiba was Mir, a convert. Mir was. Akiva was Akiva a was a, um, he was an Amharitz. He was a, he was an ignorant, but he was Jewish. Wait, help me out. Uh, Akiva was certainly a convert. Where do you get? He the, he he converted at forty years old. No, he can't. He started studying Torah at forty years old, according to one legend. He was unlearned. So the I, rabbin, rabbinic lore is that Akiva was an Amharitz. He was a he kept he was like a shepherd basically, and it was when he fell in love with uh, uh, Shavua, what's his name, Shavua Kalva or whatever, uh, his daughter, and he the guy he worked for, he found out that he, she would never be able to marry someone who wasn't a Talmid Chacham, a, a Torah scholar, and so, and her name was Rachel, Rachel, and she he said, I'll tell you what. I'll pay for your, I'll pay for your Torah training. I thought I thought that. Uh, uh, I think it's Rabbi Mir who is the convert. No, it's I, Rabbi, Rabbi Akiva. Akiva, uh, Akiva wasn't he from a family of converts? Yes, he came from a family of converts. That's uh, Torah.org says he came from a family of converts. I, I, well, I th- well th- then paste it all over. <laughs> Hang on, just a second. I'm looking for a reference. Even later in his life, he he. Uh, his lack of a clear pedigree back to uh, an established Jewish family kind of was uh, held him in some uh, disrepute by some. If I remember, I, I've read uh, I read the the book on Akiva by who was the scholar? 
anyway, go okay. ahead. Uh, okay, me... so 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 uh, whether you believe he was a convert or not, which I'm pretty sure he was, but anyway, but Rabbi Mir was a convert. No, the, I, Rabbi Akiva's family was a family of converts. I'm I'm like ninety percent positive. Okay. Anyway, okay. Anyway, so you you certainly have after after the the first century you certainly have people who believe that you can become Jewish through conversion. So it, it sounds like you're falling into pseudo uh, dispensationalism here. They they believed it back in the Maccabean day, then they forgot about no, it, and they, then oh, then it's see, coming back. Caleb, okay. I feel like you're not. It's my point about the Maccabean expansion is not sinking in. Okay. I'm not. I'm not calling it. That wasn't a religious conversion. That's like that's like Obama leading a campaign to in uh, to invade Canada and call them all U.S. citizens. And by and by the mark of U.S. citizenship, they all had to do. They put. They all had to have a here. physical mark yeah. to make them like. And now he's expand. Now the United States is goes from Mexico all the way to the North Pole or whatever, and everybody now has to pay government taxes to the okay. United States, I, I, no, and I, it's all, that's what we're talking about no, with I, but, but I understand that, but my point and is, is so that... So people, non-U.S. Hey, non hey. citizens, all of a sudden get instantaneous U.S. Okay, citizenship. Okay, I, I get that, but what you have is you ha what, what it seems like you're saying is, is that there was nothing going on in the first century. Yeah, because, the, because we don't have any sectarian group that... that Agreed with that. No, we, no, but discontent okay, after hey, that, saying, "Wait a minute, hang you on, can't you're not listening that. to my point here." A my point: Jew cannot become a Jew. Hang on, just a sec. You're not listening to the point, though. The point is, is that by the time you have the, the Mishnah come around, that certainly was a a, a a view. So what you have is you have a shift from the Maccabean point where they say, "No, that doesn't work." And it didn't just happen in the Mishnah no, times. No, they didn't it, just say, no, "Oh, even in the Mishnah, a ger it stays a ger. You a ger cannot say." Uh, the God of my fathers, according to the Mishnah. Yes, say the God of your fathers, right. or the God of the uh, the God of Israel's fathers. The Ger by the Mishnah is still a a second class is not considered fully in. Now, maybe what they'll say is after so many generations, a Ger can marry uh, a certain thing, and after a couple generations, we'll we'll now call you uh, Israel. You'll be you'll be called Israel. The gear itself, the person who, the, now we should point out, there is no verb to convert in Hebrew. It's lehit gayer, to become a gear. That's what the verb literally is. It's a, it's a hit pael of the, ver, of the shoresh lagur. You have, you, know, the, you have the same situation, though, in, in Esther, of course, with the hit pael, right? Oh, yeah, hit yahadim. Mit uh, Yahadim, and it says because of fear, there are people that. So you could say that. How do we understand Mit Yahadim? Well, it, it, according to the way the the Hebrew text, it just says that they probably behaved like they were Jews to avoid the wrath of Jews. They pretended like they were Jews so that they, yeah, we're on your side, we're on your side. But by the Septuagint, the Greek Esther, which is a very complicated history because it's a very expansive. Uh, and it comes from the Hellenistic time, of course. At the Greek Esther translates that as they Judaize, they Judaize and circumcise. It, it expands this single Hebrew verb, mityahadim, to they are, uh, what does it say? They are, they are circumcised and they uh, Judaize out of fear of the Jews. Right. So this idea of that, well, that wouldn't be legitimate. If someone, 
you know, is that covenant? Is that entering the covenant? If I'm doing it out of fear of, uh, no. So we got to put each of these texts in their context. Um, let, let me add one more wrinkle here, and that is, for instance, uh, the word neophutos uh, is used in the Greek, which means having a new mind or a new way of thinking, is is used of of converting to belief in Yeshua. For instance, in 1 Timothy 3.16, or 3.6, it says that one who wants to be an overseer is not to be a new convert, not a new, and it's this compound word, neophutos. So, um, you know, you have, uh, you know, and, and, and in 15, now, again, in, in Acts 15, um, let me think, you, you have, uh, I think it's epistrepho, or maybe it's the noun, epistrophe. Um, That's in Galatians for sure. He says, "You knew my 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 yeah my former, you know my, my former time." Is that epi? I don't know. But in Acts oh. fifteen, I just looked it up. Three, it says they they being sent on their way by the by the ecclesia, they were passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. Well, epistrepho means right. to return back, but obviously the Gentiles were not returning back to Yeshua. They were coming back, they were being converted to something that before they had not agreed with. And, it's, and, and I'd like to use conversion. Now, I know in our day, conversion can be political, it can be uh, sociological, and so forth and so on. What, I'm, what I'd like to narrow it to is to say that there were those who took a spiritual perspective on something that they believed afresh, which required them to disregard and to uh, jettison what they had believed before. I uh, I don't I'm having trouble looking up a Talmud, sure. Talmud reference. And that division, Tim, it, it, just to point out, that's that division is not ethnically. Uh, right. uh, that's that's a conversion of now. In this, the point you make with the Acts, obviously, this was a surprise because yeah. uh, the whole point in Acts 11 is: wait a minute, you went in and ate with uncircumcised people, and that this association of uncleanness. Right. With uh, you, you, you uh, sacrificed your purity, or you put aside not sacrifice. That's not the right word. You compromised your purity. Um, what are you doing? And um, then all of a sudden, they're like, "Oh, surprised!" But then they they praise God, saying, "Wow, I guess, I guess, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Holiness, is uh, going to be shared by more than." Right. than us, well, contrary to our expectations. The same thing that happened with Peter at the house of Cornelius, right? I right. mean, he said, wait a minute, the Spirit of God comes upon these unclean Gentiles the same way he came upon us? Oh, I guess they're not unclean, which is exactly what God intended uh, Peter to understand by the vision. Don't consider unclean what I have made clean. He's not talking about meat, he's talking about people. All right, so, um, you, know, I, I, you know, one thing that I'll just interject here, um, <laughs> disagreement day? Okay, sure. But to me, this is pill pill pull. This is this is the push and the pull of of dialogue that helps us move towards a, a better understanding. And I really appreciate Rob what you're what you're saying, and I agree with you that we dare not take a late rabbinic view of conversion and map it back on the first century. We dare not do that. And so the idea that uh, what we know today by way of converting to Judaism, if I can put uh, parentheses around that or uh, quote marks around that, uh, that that was going on in the first century. I agree it wasn't. What I contend 
is that there were groups who were saying, and uh, uh, let me put it back on the Gentiles. I think the same issue happens today that and was happening back then. A Gentile wanted to be fully, completely part of God's people. God's people had been for millennia primarily concentrated in the people of Israel, the offspring of the descendants of Jacob. Okay, so there was this growing ethnic kind of, uh, shall we say pride, I don't know where you want to say it, exclusivity, that basically you have to be from the descendants of Israel to really be in. And I think that there were Gentiles who just naturally said, okay, can I get that? Some groups said, absolutely not. Other groups said, let's see what we can do. So you, you would say that you hold to what has been termed as at least that aspect of the new perspective of Paul? Absolutely. Um, Excellent point, Tim. And I would just want to include when we think about those very thoughts that we include what we, the birth, new birth of faith. Mm-hmm. In other words, this yeah. was the, this was a surprise post resurrection, right? Post commissioning, that we have in Acts. We see time and time again this surprise, like we just mentioned Acts ten, eleven, Acts fifteen. There's there seems to be a, a jolt in the bump in the re- the record that wow, all of a sudden there's these Gentile, these not people who are not uh, what we would think of ethnically, if we want to use that category, not physical offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, yet. They, God's giving them the Ruach HaKodesh. Right. And, and their, their, their works are demonstrating this. It's not like someone had the Ruach HaKodesh, like a Cornelius house, and then they invite Peter over and they offer him like a ham sandwich and, right. and say, you know, well, we worship on Sundays here, Peter. You're going to have to, you know. <laughs> You've got to join the choir to be part no, of it's us. it's the other way around. It's, it's, uh, Acts 10 sets us up very clearly that this person, Cornelius, he, he was in prayer a lot. He was supporting the, uh, the people of Israel locally in his community. He believed. Um, he probably was a little unsure of where his place was. He was uh, walking a tightrope because he had a Roman probably authority that someone could give him a command that you need to go do this, this, and this. And he's like, you know, I'm not so sure about this. I, I really, you know. And that's how God works. God works. He takes real situations, real people, real relationships, and he, he puts his seed in there, and it grows. And, 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 and you what know, we see in the body of Messiah is a history of, of the planting of the word of the gospel and the fruit that it brings in the earth. It's not a system of man. We can't, mm-hmm. we, I can't create any. I could not, I, you know, as, as disciples of Yeshua, we have no authority nor any system by which we could go around and say, if you do X, Y, and Z, you will be in. Yeah, absolutely. We, and you we know, cannot do that. That's fantastic, Rob. But because, Judaism can. Yeah. Halakha does. Halakha does offer you <laughs> exactly. that. Yeah. And Peter says, you know, in Acts 15, when he's describing all of this, right, because in Acts 15, he's giving the kind of the history. This is what happened, right? This is what went on. And then what does he do? He ties it back. He ties it back to Amos. But he ties it back to something that is kind of esoteric. He says, uh, after the, he quotes Amos where he talks about, uh, I will rebuild the, the tabernacle of David, the sukkah of David, which has fallen. Wait a minute. What does that mean? And he, So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. He's saying, what's going on here? We should, duh, we should have understood this. Amos prophesied that there was coming a time when the Gentiles were going to be gathered into us. Why, how did we miss that? 
So he's basically saying this is the beginning of a harvest that's fantastic. It isn't a harvest of coming to become part of our little sect. It isn't a, a you know a, a a conversion to become like us. No, it's to become part of the people of God the same way we are through His having chosen us. He chose Abraham out of Ur of Chaldees, Ur Chastim, to be His chosen one. Right? He says in in Genesis 18. Excuse me for preaching, but this is exciting because it 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 comes it brings us to the very point. He says. I have known Abraham, <laughs> right, in, in uh, Genesis 18, 19. And he says in Amos uh, 3, 2 to Israel, you only have I known, I know it says chosen in your English, but you only have I known among all the peoples of the earth. Now, he's saying, there's coming a time when the Gentiles, when the nations will come into you. This is where it's all going. This is the crescendo. And Peter's going, oh, okay, now we get it. Now we understand it. Uh, so we, we have, and Tim, you've made this point uh, time and again uh, with respect to identity and Messiah of the people of physical Abraham, uh, physical offspring Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Who would say Jewish by Halakha today, yeah. who by God's grace come to a new birth in Messiah Yeshua. They are in a, a unique position because they they cannot retain the same perspective of of their tradition, but but the, by the fact of the new birth, they have a shift in perspective according to uh, the authority of the halakha, authority of the midrash, etc. It doesn't mean that they that that they cease practicing the traditions. That's not my point. My point is they have a necessary shift in perspective. Otherwise, what's a new birth, right? right. Unless 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 you're a new person with a new set of eyes, um, uh, so. Wait, 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 let me interject something here because it's perfect. This is what we're going to talk about at camp. If, <laughs> if, if a Jewish person comes to faith in the Messiah, guess what? He or she has accepted a new world view. Exactly. What's the new world view? It doesn't, they already believed, hopefully, maybe, they believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But now they believe in his son, Yeshua. And what is more, they understand that the writings of about Yeshua, his teaching, and so forth, and the apostles have authority in their life, even as Moses does. It changes a lot. And then some might be born, uh, like I know Israelis, born, raised, Hebrew as first language, etc., who are believers in Yeshua. They have political, in this world, political citizenship in the state of Israel. Um, now, uh, there is, with the mechanism of the, st- the nation of, or the state of Israel and the religious, you know, and there's a whole area of study for anybody who's interested on the, the interactions between the rabbinate in Israel and the state law and the, and the conflict between the ideal of a Jewish state versus the ideal of a democratic, a democratic state that is independent citizenship independent of, of religion and uh, ethnicity and things like this. I mean, there's a whole history of how, in the last several decades, how these things have uh, interacted. Um, and perhaps there, there are some things that we can extrapolate to the first, uh, first century where you have a state that is interact, it really on the front line dealing with administration on an international level uh, versus re- political, or uh, I should say, uh, groups that don't have full political power are vying for political power, but are religiously motivated. They, uh, 
And that's where we get into this conversion. What does it take for me as a grown-up? I'm a non-Jew. I'm a, a U.S. citizen. If for some reason I wanted to pursue a citizenship in Israel, I wanted to be able to go and, and vote and be full Israeli citizen, uh, that's, you know, that would be a, a choice someone could make and pursue and spend a lot of time and effort. And some of that would in, interact with rabbinic law and halakha, et cetera, and uh, negotiating, you know, do I, do I, do I keep it secret that I believe in Yeshua, you know, or not, or what? And uh, all this comes into play. I agree. Uh, but the person who is a native Israeli, who, by God's grace, as you say, comes to faith in Yeshua, Baruch Hashem, they're in a unique position, especially if they have a, a real strong grasp of modern Hebrew and and they can dive in and uh, pursue. Bible studies and really get anchored in the Word of God, they're going to be able to preach the gospel effectively to the people that the Lord would would uh, mm-hmm. uh, help them meet in Israel. Um, but that does not mean that they're that somehow they are more uh, somehow the Torah you know applies to them in some way that way they, where yeah. they have sin is a different category for them or uh, right uh, any of those things. Good point. Uh, Anyway. Okay, so um, I'm still trying to read this. I'm, I was looking for uh, Birchot 27b, and um, Adam posted in the comments section a huge portion of Talmud. Come on, Adam. How are we going to read all this? But, yeah. <laughs> um, so so uh, basically, Aish... Dot com says Rabbi Akiva began his life as a shepherd. He was entirely unlearned until his uh, middle years. He likewise had no Jewish lineage to speak of. He descended from converts. And they cite uh, Talmud Berchot 27b. Now I realize that that's extremely late. But he was. Oh, he posted 27a, it looks like. Yeah. So, I don't see it on this passage that, that Adam posted. But the point is oh, to speak of. Yeah, what they mean is that we just don't know his genealogy. No, he no. It says that he was a descended from converts, and everybody says that the Jewish Encyclopedia says that. Anyway, it's not that big of a deal. I'm just no. But what are the primary sources? I don't want. Okay, remember, got to remember the source uh, of go to Torah dot org or whatever. These are people just. This is like going to. How do we know it's not like Copper Scroll Project website or something? It's like. Aish is a pretty reputable Jewish okay, website. So, so let's look at their wording and look at the what are the primary sources. And that's what it looks Be- like Adam attempted to put. I don't see anything here about Rabbi Kiva. Birchot 27b, though, and he didn't post 27b. Okay, so what, is, what does it say? What I, is, I don't know, and that's, why, that's what I'm trying to get to. Oh, okay. I have um, here in front of me, but I'm, I'm not reading a super, super fast, so um, I'm trying to see... Well, maybe we'll look and, and, and have a conclusion on whether or not uh, Akiva was... A, well, Then I mean, even then, we would have to say that the, that the Talmud is late. Well, yeah, they're, and they're trying to... What, what are they... All, all the tales about Rabbi Akiva that are told are to encourage people to become disciples of the sages. All I'm saying because is... All I'm the saying story is, over and over again is, look at Akiva, look at him. He came from nowhere and became a, had 24,000. The Bible also says he had 24,000 disciples, and he was gone for how many years? And he comes back. I like understand that. 12, 12 years. I mean, there's so many fantastic things um, said about Rabbi Kiva. Uh, so, somebody says, scroll down, Caleb. I don't have the text in front of me. Here's uh, what it says. I can read it for you. 
Um, we uh, this is uh, who's uh, we can hardly. They're trying to decide who to appoint. How long is Rabban Gamliel to go on insulting Rabbi Yehoshua? Uh, on New Year last year, he insulted him. He insulted him in the matter of the firstborn of the affair of Rabbi Zadok. Now he insults him again. Come, let us depose him. Whom shall we appoint instead? We can hardly appoint Rabbi Yehoshua because he is one of the parties involved. We can hardly appoint Rabbi Akiva because perhaps Rabban Gamliel will bring a curse on him because he has no ancestral merit. That's uh, uh, in the Talmud uh, Bavli 27b. Let us then appoint Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah, who is wise and rich and tenth in descent from Ezra. He is wise so that if anyone puts a question to him, he will be able to answer it. I completely agree with you, Rob, that the, that, uh, the stories about Akiva are completely all inflated. It say, all it says in Aramaic, the late lay zechut avot, right. that he has no that's, merit of the fathers. That's right. That, that, that's all it says. It doesn't say he was a gare. But it it that that term zechut uh, uh, uh usually means uh, well it can also mean could it mean that is he comes from Am Haaretz he comes from unlearned uh, no because because zechut avotenu according to at least what I've studied well just avot it is zechut avot it doesn't say avotenu but oh okay avot still zechut uh, means merit of the of the father uh, the fact that it's singular there we would expect avotenu if it meant uh, that he has not measured up in terms of his uh, uh, holiness or whatever. Um, but at any rate, yeah. All it, I'm saying is that it seems like like uh, tradition about Akiva has certainly been inflated. I'll give you that, Rob. There's no doubt about it. But w- when we're talking about Akiva, we can't really know anything, really. Because, <laughs> because of, because, okay, but the, tell, the same source... The same source makes it clear that Rabbi Mir was a convert, yes. was a gear. Yeah. So it, it, it's different language, uh, and I think it's it's being inflated, like you said, Caleb. As we go now, all of a sudden later, you know, he become a Torah sage, and that's a good book. By the way, I don't have it here. Um, scripture and or what is it called? Scripture and Midrash. It's a new book out. He he goes on and shows looks at all the early Akiva stories. And shows how they develop and become these hero stories. They become the stories of heroes. But but Rob, wouldn't it be normal that if in the later Talmud they would try not to say Akiva was a convert because he became such a uh, substantial? Uh, well, that's why I think it says that he came from some place of no no merit. Wouldn't we? Wouldn't we then? Expect, because it what, if, it's, it's, what it, it says is that so you too because remember the rabbis want to convince other people that they, too, need to come and, and they can become a Torah sage. They can become a Torah scholar. Uh, you, can be, you can go from Am Haaretz to Talmid Chacham. That's, that's the Rabbi Akiva myth, or the hero picture. Whereas, the, and the conflict between his picture and that of Rabbi Ishmael was that Ishmael was a Kohen. He was raised a priest. He, uh, he grew up in it. And so the foil for Rabbi Akiva is Rabbi Ishmael, who's like the conservative... Uh, had everything from you know silver spoon uh, from from birth, whereas Rabbi Akiva came from had overcame any kind of odds that anybody would ever have to overcome and became the leading Mishnaic uh, rabbi. But I I don't think that, that there's no claim in the Talmud that he came from a gear that 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 he was a convert or that he was a descendant of converts. Although That's, it is admittedly that the the majority opinion amongst when you read. Uh, you know, rabbinic uh, uh, comments uh, in our day. 
yeah, it, today it looks like they've they've they take it and run with it. Uh, probably because they for the same motive. The motive is to bring as many people to Holocaust as you can, and especially after Schneerson, you know, the idea that uh, uh, you know we will convert, bring converts in by the masses. Right. Okay. Well, it's been fun. Um, (laughs) Next week, uh, we're taking another week off, and uh, we apologize for that, but uh, we're going to be at camp, and uh, we're just not going to have the time to uh, sit down and do a Rob and Caleb show. But we certainly uh, hope that you enjoy whatever rerun we decide to put up. Uh, And, uh, yeah. So thank you to my father, Tim, for uh, taking the time to be with us. And uh, it's always fun to put on some boxing gloves and uh, spar a little bit. Even though there weren't any big drag-out, knock-down uh, conversations. No bloody noses today. That's exactly right. Um, so, yeah, uh, enjoy, uh, enjoy the, our week off, and uh, we hope that we will be uh, enjoying the lectures from Rob and Tim and also Spike Pissaris at camp, which we hope to get to you guys uh, sometime soon. And all of that, we hope, will honor uh, the name of our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah.